We are in the book of John. We are going to be finishing up chapter five this morning. If you wonder, will we ever finish chapter five? We will today. And then I'm chomping at the bit because the next couple of weeks, like next week, we're like feeding the 5,000 and then walking on water. Oh man, uh, I'm super excited about that. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll dive in. Well, Father, I thank you for um, just a beautiful week and a week or for many of us just to be able to be outside, see the sunshine, see creation. It's so good for our souls. And I just pray for us this morning as we uh, sit down here, as we open your word. Um, Father, I pray that your spirit will speak to our hearts. I pray that we will hear from you and know your grace and your love, that we will be encouraged in our faith today as we as we think about these really important words of Christ, uh, may you infuse us with truth and hope. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 So we, uh, we are continuing on in this discussion. Um, actually, as I was working on the sermon this week, I thought of this story. I've shared this before. I, so I think it was probably like five years ago or so. I had um, I'd take my truck in. Uh, I think I had a recall. I took it in. They said, ah, well, it's going to take a... A, a day or two, and so they gave me a loaner car at the Toyota dealership, and it was a hybrid, which I never really, I hadn't really driven before, and so I'm um, not used to driving a hybrid. It's just really quiet, and um, so I, so I had to take the car back, and I was uh, getting on, uh, driving down 32nd to get on Highway 14, around about there, and as I went to get on, I, I just kind of gunned it, I guess, apparently, and um, I, I honestly, I didn't really, you know, when I get on with my truck, I just did the gas, and I, you know, if you've driven your vehicle a long time, you know how it sounds and about how fast you're going, so I confess, I was probably trying to pick out some music or something, and I was not paying attention to what I was doing, although that changed really quickly, and so I, I took off, and apparently I, I just really took off, and it was, I, the engine didn't make any noise. There was no roar noise. I just didn't even know if I was moving. And um, I had no idea how fast I was going. And then I, I looked up, and I was kind of getting up towards the crest. And there was a police officer up there and kind of hanging out with his gun right on me. And then, of course, I really quickly looked at my speedometer and thought, uh-oh. And, um, and then he just looked at me and went like this. <laughs> so I, I pulled over and... Um, I mean, I didn't know if I could get away or not, so I just pulled over, and um, he, he uh, came out, you know, he does the whole walk, walks up, and uh, which, you know, it's always a, I, it, I think I've only been pulled over once before. It made me nervous in Washougal. I expected all of you to drive by about that time and see, <laughs> oh, there's a pastor. And the guy comes up and he does a whole, you know how they do the, so do you know why I pulled you over? And <laughs> like, yeah, I, I know why you pulled me over. I was speeding. He's like, do you know how fast you're going? I'm like, well, I, I didn't at first. I'm like, this is a rental car, you know. I, I'm not trying to make excuses, but I am. And, and so I'm like, yeah, this is a rental car and it's a hybrid and I don't really know and everything. And so he's like, well, do you know how fast you're going? I'm like, well, I didn't at first. And then once I saw you, I looked and then I know how fast I was going and I was speeding. And he said, did it look like this? And he showed me how fast I was going. I'm like, unfortunately, yes, that's, that sounds about right. So all the evidence was clearly against me. He had me dead to rights. Uh, I was guilty. Absolutely guilty, and I was just like, you know, take me away, officer. So, um, but uh, actually, oddly enough, I've shared this before, but 
I still don't know what happened. He took my uh, ID and everything, went back to his car and talked. Comes back, hands me my uh, license registration and says, I'm really sorry for pulling you over. Have a good day. And he walked away. I don't know. I have no idea what happened. I don't know why I got away with it. I did. But uh, I tell you that because um, we're in chapter five and Jesus has been accused of a crime by the religious leaders. Uh, Now you remember the story maybe at the beginning of chapter five. He went uh, to the pool of Bethsaida. This is uh, actually two pools that are about the size of a football field each. Uh, they're, they're really quite deep and they have kind of a, a porch area all the way around. And people would come and it, there was a public bath is what it was. Um, people didn't have uh, showers and bathtubs in their homes and indoor plumbing. So you would come and you would kind of bathe there and everyone else is doing it. And people would come and have lunch. And it, people who were sick would come to this pool in particular and camp out there because there was this there was this legend that occasionally, every now and then, God would just randomly send an angel down and the angel would stir the water of the pool and the first sick person to get in the water would be healed of whatever malady they had. And so Jesus is walking amongst these people with all this superstition, hoping to get in the water and there's a guy there who has been unable to walk for 38 years and Jesus walks up to him and says, hey, would you like to be well and the the guy doesn't actually give a straightforward answer if you read it he kind of makes some excuses and well I you know the problem is I can't get down on the water everyone's selfish and no everyone jumps in before me and um so Jesus just basically says hey you know uh you're healed pick up your mat and walk out of here that thing that you've been sitting on that's been supporting you for 38 years you can pick it up and and go and so it's all really great right it's a really awesome story except for one thing and that is that it took place on the Sabbath which you know, for you and me, we'd be like, well, what's the big deal? Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath. But the Jews basically charged Jesus of violating the fourth commandment, which is a, a big deal, right? It's the Sabbath day. It's part of the big 10. It's a big deal. Now, the implication is simply this. They're saying, Jesus, you, you are a sinner like everyone else because you sinned by breaking this rule. That makes you an ordinary person. That means you couldn't possibly be from God like you say. You can't be one with God as you've claimed. And in fact, you're a false teacher who's spreading lies uh, amongst the people. And so Jesus launches into a defense that we've been looking at for several weeks now. He, he talks about, well, actually, um, I didn't break any rules. He says, it's you, you misunderstood the law of God. And so he talks about how, you know, God's always been working. And, and on the Sabbath, God ceased from creation work, but he still sustained and still blesses and still does all sorts of work, if you will. Jesus says, I'm simply doing what the Father does. Now, he may have broken some man-made rules, which quite frankly, don't matter, and he did it on purpose, but he did not break one of the Ten Commandments. So today, as we continue and, and finish up this chapter, Jesus is gonna conclude kind of his defense, if you will. It, it's almost as if he's standing before a jury and he's defending himself. And he's, what he's gonna do is he's gonna call some witnesses uh, as he wraps up his defense. In chapter five, verse 31, that Susan read for us this morning, let's pick that up and carry it on. Now he says this, if, if I alone bear witness about myself, My testimony is not true. Uh, Really quick, let me just tell you that that word true there is a little confusing. Uh, Alethes in the Greek can mean true 
it means valid. I think NIV translates it as valid, but it also means sufficient. And this is clearly what Jesus has in mind here. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, that is sufficient. Now there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true or sufficient. So Jesus isn't saying that his witness about himself isn't true. He's simply saying that in a human legal court of law, so to speak, it's not sufficient. You can't simply defend yourself. You can't simply say, well, I'm speaking the truth. How do we know you're speaking the truth? Well, because I say so. So you couldn't do that. A couple years back, I had to go in and sign some uh, legal documents and uh, you know, going through all the long pages and at the end, and many of you probably signed stuff like this, there's a place for me to print my name and then to sign my name. And then next to that is a place for a witness to my name. So usually I would you know, maybe be a notary public and I'd show them proof of who I am and then they would be the witness. I couldn't sign as a witness to myself. Someone else had to sign as the witness for me. Basically, that's what Jesus meant. He's just saying that legally in a court of law, his self-witness wouldn't be valid, even if it was true, which it was. It just wouldn't be valid. So in the Old Testament, when a crime was committed, oftentimes the uh, person who was accused of a crime would be brought to the city gate. And there would be judges who would be on duty. And so the judges would hear the case and um, there would have to be at least two witnesses to whatever the crime was and they would separate the people and get their story and the stories had to absolutely match one another. And in fact, it was such a serious crime to go be a witness and lie that, that the death penalty could be instated if someone lied uh, in a court of law, so to speak, for the Israelites at the gate. Now Jesus has been accused of a crime by the religious leaders. And so now he is, he's defending himself and he's gonna, he's gonna call some witnesses, if you will. And actually he starts in uh, verse 31 and 32 by talking about another witness. The commentators agree, is he's talking about God the Father. And I think as we look at the whole passage today, the way I, I'm really seeing this is, Jesus says, God the Father is my witness, but let me give you four ways in which God the Father has expressed his witness to uh, the world around us. So we're gonna look at these four witnesses that we find in the passage. You've got them outlined for you in your notes. Now the first witness is somebody that we've talked about before. It's John the Baptist. So you might remember John. We saw him back in, John, uh, in the book of John chapter one. John's parents uh, were unable to have children. And when they were quite advanced in age, beyond childbearing years, you might remember God sent an angel uh, to talk to John's dad and to say, your wife is gonna become pregnant in her advanced years and she's gonna have a son and you're gonna name him John. He's gonna be this great guy who goes before uh, the Lord. And so even from his birth, right, there's obviously this God's hand is on him. He grows up, we, there's about 30 years, we have no idea what happens to John. He just grows up. Next thing we know, we find him, he's living in the wilderness. He's living a simple life. He's eating grasshoppers and honey and wearing weird clothes. And, and one of the things that he did is he publicly testified about Jesus. At one time, Jesus comes walking by and he says, that guy right there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He described Jesus as the Son of God and as one who is spirit anointed. So he's the first witness that Jesus calls, if you will. Now he says to the leaders, he says, now you sent, that is a group of people, to John. And, and John is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So on the one hand, he says John was only a man. 
On the other end, he says, but he was a man who was sent from God. And he was given a mission from God. And he was true to that mission. He witnessed the, the Holy Spirit coming down during, during baptism. And what he says is, now you guys, you religious leaders, you sent a, a group to John um, to investigate him because his ministry had kind of blown up and everybody had heard about John and they were like, who is this guy and what's he doing? John was kind of a spiritual rock star, if you will, of that time. He, had, he created a national stir. He, he's living in the wilderness. He's living a simple life. He's calling people to repent of their sins, to be baptized and prepare their hearts for the coming of the Lord. And people were coming from everywhere to hear John. He was like a phenomenon. People would travel, they'd camp out, they'd hear him teach. They'd take part in his baptism. Every uh, Israelite had heard of John. One writer said this, at this point in the story, John is more famous than Jesus in Israel. And most people believe that John was a great prophet that God had sent. They'd been waiting 400 years. And they believed that John was the guy that Malachi was talking about. In verse 35, Jesus describes him this way. John was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That word uh, burning in the Greek suggests uh, an igniting from an outside source. So the idea is John's just like a lantern and God sparks a light in him. So it's not his light, it's, it's God's that's shining in him and, and, and from him. In, in John chapter one, verse seven, we kind of look back and read this. It says that John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now he was not the light, but he came to bear, there's that word witness. He came to bear witness about the light. So Jesus says, you know, when, when John was ministering, and now John's off the scene by this time, he's been martyred, we'll talk about that in the future, but he says, you know, you are willing to rejoice in John and in his light for a while because John was different. He wasn't like the other religious leaders. He wasn't self-promoting. Um, he was humble. He reflected the light of God and people could see that. They could tell. He, he challenged people uh, in their life, in their heart, in their sin. He pointed people to God. And people sought him out and they found a joy in his ministry. Sometimes when we, uh, maybe we hear a, a sermon or we're studying a bi our Bible, we read a book on scripture and it's hard and it's challenging and you know, it causes us to repent or whatever. It can be hard, but there's joy in there also, isn't there? When we meet the Lord there and he calls us to, to better things in our life. And Jesus' point is simply this. God sent John as a witness to the deity of Christ. And he says, you know, you rejoiced in him for a while, but here's this point, but you missed you actually missed his, the point of his ministry. You loved John and you loved his ministry, you just, he was pointing to Jesus and oddly enough, they didn't get the point. So Jesus calls John as his fir first witness. His second witness are the works that, that Jesus has done. In verse 36, second witness, he says, but the, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So here's a, another witness that he says is even more significant than John. And that is, Jesus says, the works that, that he was doing. So he says, the Father's given me work to do, uh, probably agreed upon uh, in the Council of the Trinity in eternity past, and now J Jesus is, is doing that, he's living that out, and the works that he does are proof 
that he was sent by the Father. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna look at a couple of really famous miracles. What's the point? That Jesus is sent from God and who he says he is. Going back in John chapter three, you might remember this story. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Sorry, I got ahead of myself here. There we go. Uh, uh, Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, and you might remember this conversation, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one, and here's the point, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus did so many miracles in public that you just simply couldn't deny it. Everyone was talking about it. There was proof about it everywhere you went. Jesus' enemies could only say that they were done by the power of Satan or by the power of a demon, but they couldn't, they couldn't deny that he'd actually done the miracle. J.C. Riley says it's the facts which wise men pretend to deny today. No one pretended to deny in that day. Like you couldn't deny he did the miracle. You would just try to figure some way to, to write it off. The works of Jesus refer here to the, his entire mission. So we think about things like turning water into wine and, and healing the, the man at the pool of Bethsaida, feeding the thousands, which we'll look at next week, uh, controlling the weather, walking on water, raising someone from the dead. But there's even more included in the works that he did. His teaching as part of his works, the conversations and, and exchanges that he had with people, his actions, his reactions, uh, declaring of the gospel, and of course, his greatest miracle of all, and that is his own resurrection. And so Jesus says, you know, John's a witness and my miracles, which people couldn't deny, is a witness and his third witness is the Father. In verse 37, he says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen. So commentators think he's probably referring back to the baptism of Jesus by John. And he's speaking to a group of people who weren't actually there at the time. They didn't see and hear what went down. We read about that in Matthew 3, verse 16. It says, now when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to, to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So by the way, you have the whole Trinity all here in just a couple of verses, right? You have Jesus who's there in person. You have the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove that's resting upon Christ. And you have the voice of the Father speaking. God the Father spoke as a witness at Jesus' baptism. He also has spoken over the years through the scripture. Um, we can think back through the angelic announcements uh, for the birth of Christ and at the birth of Christ. We can think of the signs uh, that are done through the power and represent the Father. We think of his teaching. In verse 38, Jesus says this, and, and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So he's talking about the, the word of God that's not abiding in them and he's probably speaking about the entire message of God over the years. And the irony that can be lost in us is this, that, that the Israelites, the, the Jews, took a lot of pride in their heritage. It, they're, they're being called, um, being adopted by God, being called his people, receiving uh, the revelation of the word, and having all this heritage in God. And the irony is they, they really felt like it made them better than everyone else. 
And yet what Jesus says here is that they actually um, didn't believe in, in the God who had called them out. He says if they had truly believed God's message, they would believe the one that God sent. And so there's this irony here that they call themselves the people of God. And yet they are very much those who don't believe in God. And the proof is they don't believe in the one that God has sent. And our fourth witness is this. It's, it's the scriptures themselves. In verse 39, Jesus says this. And this is a passage that we've talked about a lot before. Jesus says to them, now you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he says about these people that they search the scriptures. And that word search there in the Greek has the idea of careful or thoughtful effort to learn something. They're students. They're Old Testament Bible nerds. They read the Bible. They studied the Bible. They talked about the Bible. They debated about the Bible. They studied doctrine. They went to Bible studies and sermons and teaching. And we know that they were really into memorizing the word of God. But somehow they developed a, almost a superstitious approach to the word of God. So for instance, we know that Pharisees regarded the Old Testament with so much esteem, which would be good except where they went with it, that, that they thought that by studying the parchments of the Old Testament, like, like laying it out and studying it, and they would do things like count the letters and, and they would memorize scripture and they really believed that they, they really, really worked hard at this, that that would somehow gain them favor with God and that they could actually find salvation just through the Old Testament itself. Not through a relationship with God, but just through the Old Testament, that they could gain eternal life. D.A. Carson puts it this way, and I, I'm quoting him because I thought he said it well. He said, Jesus insists that there's nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures if one fails to discern their true content and purpose. So they knew where to look, but they just didn't know who to look for. As one writer put it, they had inspired content that had come from God. They had competent methodology. They were dedicated to studying it. They worked hard. It's just that they missed the point. They didn't think that the scriptures led to anything more than the scriptures. It was just about reading the Bible and knowing it. J.C. Riley put it this way, he said, Christ is not merely in the Gospels. He is to be found directly and indirectly in the law, the Psalms, the prophets, in the promises to Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, in the types and emblems of the ceremonial law and the predictions of Isaiah and the other prophets. Jesus, the Messiah, is everywhere to be found in the Old Testament. And sometimes, you know, you can find books and commentators who will just, they'll just go through the Old Testament and all they do is identify everywhere where you can find a type uh, of Jesus. And it's a great way, by the way, to study the Old Testament. But the point he's making here is this. Merely knowing the facts of Scripture without embracing the Savior of the Scripture will not bring you the blessing of salvation. Now, I have to tell you this. I have known people over the years, as maybe you have. Uh, I've even worked with some people, uh, not here, thankfully, but people who knew the Bible really well. People who taught the Bible, people who studied the Bible daily, people who wrote books about Scripture, and, and yet somehow, somehow they missed the point. 
And they didn't really trust the Jesus of Scripture. They didn't really love him. Even church leaders I've known who at some point in the way it comes out is at some point they decide not to submit to Scripture, not to trust in Scripture, but to trust in their own ways and, and leading to things like cheating on their spouses or leaving their spouse for someone else or stealing money from the church or sometimes people would just walk away from the faith to say I quit and they're gone in congregations that would sit stunned like people would just look at each other and go what just happened how but he knew the Bible but he went to seminary I mean he knew Greek and and he taught us the word of God how can that happen that someone can know the word and yet not have a relationship with Christ. In Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about this very thing in a different way. You might remember he talks about the need to both know the words of Christ and to act upon them, to build your life on the words of Christ. That's what faith is. Faith isn't just knowing something. Faith is believing it and applying it to your life. And so Jesus says, right, is it not enough to know the words of Christ. You have to act on the words of Christ you need to have faith in the words of Christ. I, I love studying the Bible. Like, I just love it. I, I love reading it. I love outlining it. One of the, my favorite things that I ever get to do is study it and write and, and put together an entire series. Like, I don't know why. It's a, my favorite thing. Like, you'll always know when I'm writing a new series because I'm just the happiest guy on earth at that time. Like, I love research. I love digging into controversy and, and languages. But here's the thing. I've learned that doesn't guarantee my spirituality. Just studying the Bible does not guarantee your spirituality. It's possible to read the Bible without faith. This last week I was uh, driving to get coffee in the morning and I turned on the radio and it was on NPR and I, I, it was the middle of an interview. I don't know who was getting interviewed. Um, I don't know exactly what it was about. It was an author and he had written a book and he was in this interview but I caught, this is what I caught. So the person interviewing him said, you know, well, so you were raised Catholic, right? And he's like, yeah, I was raised Catholic. And she asked him, so are you a believer? And he's like, no, I'm not a believer in God. And she says, well, do, do you believe the Bible? And he says, no, I don't believe, no. Like stories about Jesus, like working miracles. I don't believe that kind of stuff. He said, but I do, I do love the book of Ecclesiastes. And she's like, well, tell me about that. And he's like, well, I just, you know. It's my favorite thing. I, I love to read it, and I've memorized sections of it, and I study it. And I'm listening to this guy. I'm thinking, that is the oddest thing. Like, Ecclesiastes is the darkest book in the Bible, but he's like, but it's so true to life. And so he's all talking about it and how he loves it, and he quotes it, and he uses it in his book and stuff. And I'm thinking, that, and there it is, right? Somebody who's studying a book of the Bible, reading commentary, all this stuff, thinks about it, memorizes it. He doesn't believe in the God of it, he doesn't, like the book of Ecclesiastes points to a savior. But somehow, he's missed that. The Bible points to a savior. It points to Jesus Christ. And if you miss that, then you've just missed the whole point. And so Jesus talks about this, this evidence, and, and then we come to this, I think this, this question as we read this. Like, so Jesus gives four witnesses to the Jewish leaders. And the question becomes, why would they reject the witnesses? Why, why would they do it? I mean, you, you have to think about this for a minute. 
right? They're not living 2,000 years later reading about the miracles of Christ. They saw them. And they saw the, the work of John. Like they, how could they possibly do that? And in this just wonderful moment, in verse 42, Jesus just cuts right to the heart of the matter. This is how, this is how this could happen. He says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now there's two ways you could read it, but there's only one way really in the Greek. You could say they don't have God's love existing in them or that they don't love God. And clearly the context is they don't love God. And because they don't love God, they don't love Jesus. And yet, even so, even so, what are we reminded of back from John 3.16? Even though they don't love God, God so loved the world. God so loved the world that Jesus came to demonstrate the love of God, to do the works of God to demonstrate his love, and to offer the benefits of God's love to a group of people who don't love him. That's the bottom line. Isn't it interesting how often, and you know, sometimes when we, when we talk a lot about the love of God and some people will be like, oh, I'm really nervous about that. It sounds like you're just saying it's all love and you're denying theology and doctrine. I'm not doing that, but isn't it interesting how often it just comes down to loving God in scripture? Hey Jesus, what's the most important thing? I can only do one thing. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a multitasker. All right, well then love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's pretty simple. Uh, William Clink in his commentary, and again, quoting Clink a lot here, he says this. I love this. This is the conflict humanity has caused. While God loves us, <laughs> we love ourselves. And while we would sacrifice everything else for ourselves, God sacrificed himself for everyone else. And embracing this irony, this is the part of the quote I love. Embracing this irony is the act of conversion. Okay, so that's interesting. Watch what he says here. Because it reorients the person toward God and away from the world, causing us to turn from ourselves to God. Well, indeed, that's exactly what we're talking about. And that is exactly the point of Scripture. In verse 43, Jesus goes on. Now I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Now if another person comes in their own name, well, you'll receive them. So how can you believe when you receive glory or praise, is I think what he's getting at here, from one another, and you do not seek the glory or praise that comes from the only God? So Jesus is getting at kind of a common problem here. We're all aware of this. Of course, we all think that we're above it, and that is the human tendency to gravitate towards pleasing people. And I know that you were probably all sitting here and thinking, well, I don't do that, and I don't need you know, the praise of people and stuff, because you're probably very unique in that sense. But I would say, in general, this is a problem for humanity. We want people to like us. We want people to admire us. We want to be accepted. We want praise. We would never say that, but yeah, we like it, you know? And it often starts very young. It can start with our parents. I just need the, the praise and the adoration of our parents. Or, or, you know, it could go to peers as we get older or, or a teacher, an educator, a coach, or whoever it is. But we want the praise of people more than we desire the praise of God. We just need someone today to tell us how great we are because we don't have, we can't wait until this life is over to hear God say, well done, right? The only opinion that will matter 
but we just need somebody right now to tell us how good we are. And the problem is if you are not seeking glory or praise from God, then you will seek it anywhere you can find it to fill up that need, that void in you, maybe from your parents. Now I was thinking the other day, I've been here a lot of years and I've, I've, had, you know, I've had conversations with people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I've had the same conversation with people in their 60s and their 70s who will tell me they're still trying to get the, the approval of their parents. You know, people in their 70s going, my dad still has never, you know, given me approval or given me, because we, we crave that. We, we need that in our lives for some reason. Or we'll, if not, we'll try to find it from a peer or from a coach or, or an educator or a friend. Sometimes when people get that, the dating age, you know, you'll see sometimes people who date, not so that they can bless the other person, but because they're just needy for someone to, oh, you're great and you're awesome and it's all about them. It's, it's that kind of dysfunctional relationship. You see it on Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and wherever. People who are so desperate to be liked, so desperate to be praised, and held in high regard by other people that they will, they'll identify themselves with whatever cause is, is cool today or whatever culturally correct position will get them the applause of, of people on social media or wear whatever brand it is or, or attach themselves to whatever celebrity because they're so desperate for the praise and affirmation of other people that they'll do anything, say anything, affirm anything, consume anything, wear anything just to fill that void in their lives. And to, into all this, Jesus says, this is the problem. And in fact, he asks a pointed question, um, going back to uh, verse 43. And um, commentators have said that actually, you can read it this way, how can you believe? But the sense in the Greek, one of the ways you can take it is this, that it can be read this way. How can you even begin to believe? How can faith even start in you? I think what he's saying here is this. To believe in Jesus will rob you of the glory or praise of many people in this world. And if you are living for the praise of people, how will you ever begin to believe? How will you ever step from this thing over here to living for the praise of God? And Jesus says it's this huge issue for people. In verse 45, he goes on, he wants to press this matter. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses. So again, we know that Jesus will be a judge, but back in John 3, again, it, he said, I, I didn't come primarily as a judge because people are, are already stand uh, judged, if you will, but Jesus says, I, I came to save uh, that which was lost. But he says here, actually, on the last day, speaking to the Jews in particular, there's one who will stand before you in accusion. It won't be me. It'll be Moses on whom you have set your hope. Right? You guys attach yourself to Moses and the hope of Moses and, and the things that Moses taught. He said, but if you believe Moses, you would have believed me because Moses wrote about me. Go back, it's all about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so Jesus again says, I, I didn't come to judge you, I came to save you, but Moses will accuse you. Jesus says, because he wrote of me. The message of Moses always had Jesus as his object. It always pointed to him. And there's a connection between Moses' writings and, and the claims of Christ. And to believe one is to believe the other, and to reject one is to reject the other. So he's just saying, if you reject me, 
you're rejecting Moses. And so he kind of wraps up his defense here. And I, I think when you get to the end of this, there's a really pressing question, which is this. How do we avoid becoming like the people who had all this evidence of Jesus' deity and yet somehow rejected him? How do we keep from becoming the same kind of people 2,000 years later? And I, you know, I thought a lot about it this week and I, I wanted to come up with some really amazing statement for you and I, I don't have one. Like, here's all I have, okay? Just pay attention. Just open your eyes to the evidence that already exists all around you. See, that was their problem. All the evidence they needed was already there. What else could he give them? They had everything they needed. The problem was the evidence. The problem was them. They were not paying attention. Uh, William Clink puts it this way. He says, but for the good of you and me, for our salvation, God established witnesses so as to assist us uh, to fix our naivete, our inward focus, and our inability to believe that which we cannot see. And I love this. He says, before the grace of God could even be embraced by our true faith, God was already accommodating himself and his message to us. Before we even knew what the love of God was, God was already bestowing his love upon us. It's already there. Years ago, we used to, when I first came here, we were a small group of people. We met next door where the kids meet now. And we'd have one service on the weekend and we used to do something that now I, I, I just can't even believe. We used to have this thing, if you're here back then, called God sightings. Is anyone still here? So we would, we would have a, a place in the service with an open mic. I mean, looking back now, like, wow. And we'd have an open mic and, and a person could just be like, hey, I have a God sighting. And they would get up and share somewhere, somewhere, somewhere they saw God work this week in their life. And a couple of people would share and then we would move on. And, and there came a point where we just couldn't do it anymore, but I would always tell people, but we can still do God sightings and we should be doing God sightings, but what do we look for? What should I be, where do I see God working? So in your notes, like we could add a ton of them, but I just wanna give you a couple to get you thinking. What should we be paying attention to? So the first one I just wanna give you to think about is really general, just in a general sense, like pay attention to creation. In Romans chapter one, this is exactly what Paul's pointing to. He's talking about people who have rejected God, re rejected the witness of God, and he says this, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, that is they could see God all around them, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God. So I always use this phrase all the time, creation is a billboard, right? It's just a billboard for the existence of God. Now, it's, it's a limited billboard, if you will. It, it tells us that there's a designer, right, in its complexity. It, it tells us there's a creator. It talks about his eternal power, so he must be an eternal being that, that has power. He has a divine nature. But it's all around us if we'll just open our Eyes, about a week ago, I had an appointment with my cornea specialist in Portland. And so I was in, in his, uh, waiting in his office for him to come in. And like, I think it's just standard. If you're an eye doctor, you have to have this. He had this big picture of an eyeball on the wall with all the, you know, all the details and everything. And I, I can never help but look at it because it's just an eye. But it's so complex. 
Like it's amazing that an eye even exists, right? That an eye even works. I'm just looking at it, just looking at the complexity of it. And he walks in and he's like, what are you looking at? I'm like, that thing is a miracle. And his response is, it is. He says, it is. It's just unbelievable everything that it takes. And that's just an eye. We live in a world full of proof of the evidence of God around us. Notice what it says here, though. Basically, take note of creation and what it teaches us about God and give God the glory for it. See, what it says here is they wouldn't give thanks to God. They would not acknowledge him as creator and they would not give thanks to him. So let us not be that kind of person. Let us not be people who ignore creation and and are not thankful, right? So I could go on. I love this point, but just pay attention to creation. Be thankful for what God's made. Second thing, because I gotta get these done, right? Pay attention to God's word. So we've already kind of talked about this. We talk about this a lot. I would say read the word of God. Read the word of God. Read the word of God. Read every day. Listen to it. We live in an amazing day, right? You're driving to work, driving to get coffee. You can have your phone read the Bible to you. Like that's better than almost anything else you're gonna listen to on the radio. Get teaching. Ponder it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Talk to people about it. Talk about it. Believe it. Believe it. Put it into practice. And notice what happens when you do that. What happens when you put the word of God into action? Notice, pay attention. What happens? What does God do when you put it into practice, when you love him? Look for Jesus in the word of God, right? That's what he says. Wherever you are reading, right? Jesus said, it's about me. So find out what what is it about Jesus? Take note of what it teaches you, how to love him, how to follow him. Pay attention to God's word. Pay attention to creation. Pay attention to God's blessings. I'm hitting a lot of low-hanging fruit here. I know this, but Psalm 103, 2 says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Forget none of his benefits. I mean, that's a full-time job right there, right? That means identifying them and not losing track. So I said this a few weeks ago, but I'll say it again. So when you wake up in the morning, right, and God gives you another day, Pay attention to that. Thank God for that. When God gives you another meal, thank God for that. Pay attention to that. When God gives you a bed to sleep in, a roof over your head, when he gives you another day of health, when he gives you an opportunity for education, talk with a bunch of people after last service, how school going, oh, I've got a month to go. Now I don't mean to rain on your parade, but you could be thankful. Uh, you know, that you, I still have a month to go, right? I mean, it's all about your perspective. Like God's given you the ability to get education. There's a lot of people in this world who, they don't get that. I'm trying not to look over here. I don't want to like make any, but how about your job that you go to, right? Same thing. Like when God gives you a job, other believers around you who encourage you in your faith, maybe there's somebody in your life who loves you, (laughs) who knows the Lord and they love you and they encourage you. Take note of that. Thank God for that blessing. Don't just take the blessings of God for granted. Identify them. Thank God for them. Tell others about them. I gotta get this done here. Next one, pay attention to believers. So I'm just getting this from John the Baptist, right? John is a witness. Now granted, John's unique. But God still has witnesses today, right? All around you. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, my what? Good. My witnesses in jail. The last service is like they, 
they were done. Like, nobody said witnesses. Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Our witness is not just our message. Like, Jesus said things like, people know that you're my disciples by your love for one another, right? The way we live, our very lives. Not just the things that come out of our mouth, but our very lives are our witnesses to the reality of Christ. And God still uses godly believers today and he's put some around you. So notice them, be thankful for them, right? People who point you to Jesus. People who tell you the hard things spiritually that maybe no one else tells you. People who encourage you. People who serve as a witness to the reality and the grace and salvation. Like when you see those people, you see God does save people. God does grow people. Thank God for them. When you see it, take note of it. Give God glory for it. Let it build your trust in Christ that he can work in you and build you spiritually. And I, I have to be done here. You're probably thinking that 10 minutes ago. Let me just mention one more. Pay attention daily. I could have probably just said pay attention mo- you know, moment by moment. Here's my point. You need to build a rhythm or a habit if you're not into that. Right, so you're not gonna just walk out of here if you're like, yeah, I, almost everything is lost on me. <laughs> All right, everything we talked about, I, you're not gonna just automatically do it because, oh, well, you know, I, we talked about it in the sermon. You've gotta build a rhythm or a habit. You need to make time to daily process these things. How are you not going to forget all the benefits of the Lord? You're going to have to make a practice of this thing. So maybe you want to have a a time of prayer every day where instead of asking God for things in that time, you'll just thank God for things. You'll just recognize things. And, And the witnesses that God has placed around you. Or maybe you could do it at the dinner table. If that's a ritual that you're able to have with family or someone you're married to, you could just, let's just talk and unpack that too. What'd you see? What did God do? Or maybe just, you know, time to meditate on that. Now I've shared before I journal. Um, that's the one thing that works for me. I often meditate on scripture when I'm running or riding a bike or whatever it is, but journaling is the thing for me that just slows me down, right? Just kind of, I'm able to look for what God did. I can't tell you how many times I'm journaling about my day and suddenly I remember something that happened and I didn't even notice it in the moment, but now looking back, I'm like, oh, wait, now I know why that happened and what God was doing. That's what journaling does for me. It really makes me aware of God in a way. But I started a practice a couple of weeks ago thinking about this sermon and I I had this idea, what would happen if instead of journaling at the end of the day, I journaled at the beginning of the day? which is really hard for me because I have a really set rhythm in the morning. So what I've done for the last few weeks is I get up, get ready, get my coffee, and then before I do anything else, I journal. And let me tell you, it's hard. It's a hard practice because I'm not into it, but wow, it's great to end your day thinking about the Lord, but starting your day thinking about yesterday for me has been a powerful thing. I start every day going, oh yeah, all these ways that God showed up yesterday, and it really spurs my faith for today. Journaling might work for you, might not. Meditating on scripture might or might not. But my point is this. You need to find a way so that you can be aware of the evidence, that you can capture what it is God's doing around you. As one writer said, while the world waits until the end of human history to give glory to Jesus, the church acknowledges him as Lord now above all other authorities. Or as it says in Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. And this is the point of all of this. Jesus is Lord. Look at the evidence that God has placed all around you. Let me pray for us.
Father, I thank you for our time in the Word, and I thank you how inexhaustible your Word is. We could go on for hours. But Father, I pray for us right now, knowing that maybe for many of us, we just don't have a rhythm right now. We don't have a habit of just sitting down and thinking about the ways you've blessed us and the ways you've answered prayer and thinking about the evidence that you've placed around us, thinking about the wonder of creation, thinking about the spiritual relationships you've given us. Father, open our eyes. Father God, help us to pay attention. You have surrounded us with evidence of your existence and your goodness and your providence and your salvation. May we be people who have eyes to see. We can't make that happen, but you can through your spirit. And so make us aware. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen.